turn uh, with me please to James chapter 1. We're hoping this morning to begin a series of sermons in the book of James and uh, we're looking at James chapter 1 this morning, page 1213 if you're using one of the church uh, Bibles. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers, withers the plant, its blossom falls, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. I want to begin this morning by asking, uh, what's the difference between a Porsche sports car and a Christian? It's not a trick question. One begins life in a splendid car showroom and ends up on a car scrap heap. The other begins life in the scrap heap of fallen humanity and ends up in the showroom of heaven. James, the Lord's brother, has a particular interest in how God gets our lives into showroom condition. Unlike many of Paul's letters, He does not address a particular church with a specific problem. But he writes, verse 1, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. His immediate audience is the whole church. And Paul tells us what he means by showroom condition in verse 4 so that you might be complete and mature, not lacking anything. 
Incidentally, this is a goal shared by the other apostles. In Colossians 1 and 28, Paul writes, He is the one we proclaim so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. He says something similar writing uh, his epistle to the Ephesians. And this should indeed be the fundamental goal of every gospel preacher, to present his hearers mature in Christ. And the maturity that's in view here has nothing to do with age or how many years we have been Christians, but it describes how much we have grown up into Christ. How much of Jesus can be seen in us? You see, throughout eternity, myriads of angels, as we were saying to the children, uh, will be pointing to believers and saying, doesn't it take your breath away? to see what God's grace has achieved in people like they once were. Isn't it amazing? Or to use Luther's bold language, he has turned them into little Christs. That's it. That's the goal. That's Christian maturity. And James recognizes that integral to this process of transformation and the instrument God uses to bring it about is trial. And this morning I want us to look at three things. Uh, Our attitude towards trial, the purpose of trials, and thirdly, the fruit of trials. Well, the first of these, our attitude uh, to trial. Wherever you go and whatever church you might visit, there is one inescapable constant. The members of that church in a whole variety of ways will be experiencing trials. Some will be ridiculed at work or at university because of their Christian profession. Others will be regularly passed over for promotion. For some, the loss of a loved one will have turned their whole world upside down. Others will struggle with indifferent health straighten financial circumstances. The list goes on and on and on. And so I think we can immediately identify with the relevance of a book that addresses the subject of trials. We've been there, or if we're not there just now, we will be there fairly shortly. We need to begin this morning by affirming that for the Christian there is no lifetime warranty against trial. There's no immunity. There is no hiding place. None whatsoever. Indeed, it is a perversion of the gospel 
to preach, come to Jesus and your troubles will be over. There are many Christians who will say, my troubles just began when I came to Jesus. That's when I really began to discover troubles when I committed my life uh, to Christ. It's equally foolish to teach that trouble and affliction are only to be found in the households of the very worst Christians. Trials, they claim, are a clear sign of God's displeasure. Well, those who say such things have They've clearly failed to read the book of James. Indeed, they've clearly failed to read the Bible, full stop. James tells us that we are going to face trials of many kinds. They're going to invade our lives along a variety of routes. You may remember that John tells us that Christians will be pressurized by the world and the flesh and the devil. Well, note that the world in which we live is not neutral. It's not the the good world of God's original creation. It's contaminated by sin. Its default position is anti-God, creating an alien environment where its hatred of Jesus spills over into hatred for his followers. If the world hates you, said Jesus, remember it hated me first. Trials coming from a world that is anti-God. Secondly, we are constantly battling against our own sinful flesh. Yes, as Christians, uh, we, we may well be new creatures in Christ. But the the dregs of our old fallen humanity cling to the new man that Christ has made us. Fifth columnists provoking an internal conflict that will not cease this side of glory. Trials. And the flesh is there to contribute to them. Thirdly, the devil expresses his rage against God by opposing those who love him. And he will seek to engineer circumstances designed to crush us. And so trial for the believer is not simply a possibility or a probability. It is an inevitability an inevitability. Now, trials can evoke a number of responses, even among Christians. Some display bitterness and rebellion and shake their clenched fist heavenward. How can a God of love allow something like this to touch my life. Do you remember the advice of Job's wife? Curse God and die. 
There's the bitterness. Curse God and die. Secondly, there's the clenched teeth response of the Christian stoic. Oh, I'm coping famously under trial. I really am. It's no hardship for me. A view promoted in the famous soldier's marching song in World War I. So pack up your troubles in your old kit bag and smile, smile, smile. 18-year-olds, uh, you know, you're, you're facing the gas attack. You're about to be machine gunned, but smile. That's the response we need to trial, smile. What hypocrisy was being imposed on the troops for behind that veneer of bravado, that forced smile, there's an aching heart. Now, James advocates a quite different route. Verse 2, he says, count it pure joy. Now, surely that's a misprint in our Bibles. Count it pure joy? Are you joking? This isn't hyperbole. It's not preacher's exaggeration. Indeed, James here purposefully uses an accounting term. He's saying, make a very precise and deliberate calculation, and the bottom line is going to read pure joy. Well, James, surely you need to demonstrate why such a response is not over the top. Well, he does demonstrate that in the verses that follows. And so we move on to ask, what are the purpose of trials? When James talks about the trials which God allows, he uses the expression, a testing of your faith to describe what's happening to us. Now, testing has a twofold purpose. First, it can prove the genuineness of something. We live, do we not, in a, in a world of counterfeits. Unscrupulous men counterfeit things of value, furniture, paintings, uh, I wonder if you've ever watched uh, Faker Fortune on uh, TV. It's a great program. Only things of value are counterfeited. The most valuable thing we can possess is saving faith. And so the New Testament is constantly asking, is it genuine do you have the real thing? You wouldn't buy an expensive work of art without having it authenticated, would you? Well, what expert can we visit to put our faith under the microscope, to pronounce it valid? How can we know? How can we possibly know if we possess the real thing? Well, by asking how we cope with trials. Trials reveal the genuineness of our faith. 
Think for a moment of the parable of the sower. In Mark 13 and verse 20, we read what was sown in the rocky, of what was sown in the rocky places. When trouble and persecution comes, he quickly falls away. Counterfeit faith. Ingenuine. An example of that is found in the course of Jesus' own ministry. You'll remember in John chapter 6. Jesus has been teaching the significance of being the bread of life. And then he begins to apply the significance uh, of the costliness of discipleship to the large crowd who, uh, who counted themselves to be his disciples. And in verse 66 of chapter 6, we read, from that time onwards, many turned away. In genuine faith. And Jesus turned to Peter and he said, well, will you also go away? Speaking of, of that close band of friends that were his. And Peter replies, Lord, you've got the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Trials give the Christian the opportunity to prove the validity of faith. For trials cause us, cause us to cling to Christ. There is nowhere else to go. Secondly, trials prove the quality of something. I've uh, met students uh, confident in their knowledge of their subject. I hope this isn't going to be too disturbing for some of you. But confident in their knowledge of their subject. Then an exam tests the quality of that knowledge. And some are deflated when the exam results are posted, for the results reveal the gulf between the student's confidence in their ability and the examiner's assessment of it. God's testing not only distinguishes between the genuine and the ingenuine, but it tests its quality, its strength. And it sometimes takes a test to bring us to our spiritual senses and to show us that our faith really isn't as strong as we thought it was. And so thirdly, we ask, what then is the fruit of trials? What what are trials accomplishing in our lives? When God tries our faith, he is not engaging in a fruitless academic exercise. His testing is designed to produce something in us. And James identifies at least three areas of the Christian life that are enhanced by trial. And the first of these is perseverance. James says in verse 3, the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And perseverance is one of those defining characteristics of the Christian. Christian staying power can only be produced by trial. In the first century writings, 
uh, perseverance appears in two quite distinct and different contexts. The first is from the world of athletics, and it describes the runner who keeps on going despite all of the difficulties and setbacks until he throws himself over the finishing line. Now, some of you I know have uh, run half marathons or marathons, so you'll know all about that. Keeping on going, refusing to give up until you cross the finishing line. The second context is a military one and describes the soldier in the field of battle who repels attack after attack in that energy-sapping process. He stands his ground until the battle is won. In Ephesians 6, we read, Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand to the very end. Persevere. When the New Testament asks, what is the evidence that a real work of grace has been done in a person's life? The answer most commonly given is not that a person has gone forward at an evangelistic meeting, though that can be meaningful, but rather that they have persevered, endured to the end. They've stuck with Jesus despite the trials of life. Why? For trials rightly embraced cause us to press deeper and deeper into the very arms of Jesus. Samuel Rutherford, uh, in my view, wrote some of the best pastoral letters ever written. And he wrote to a number of folks bereaved, uh, many bereaved of young children, uh, to those in serious illness, and as he wrote of the trials they were experiencing, uh, what he constantly encouraged them to do was to press further Ben into Jesus. Let them drive you closer to him, he would say. Trials rightly embraced cause that to happen. And that was Job's experience, was it not? In the midst of the trials that that poor man suffered, uh, surely one of the highlights of that book is when he cries out, though he slays me, yet I'll trust him. Here's a man who has pressed further into, deeper into the God to whom he was committed. And as we are driven deeper into Christ, we find perseverance finishing its work, making us mature and complete, not lacking anything. And it's grasping that. This is the purpose of trial. It's grasping that that enables us to rejoice under trial because we stop fixing our attention on the process and we start seeing more of the finished product. 
prepared for God's display case, giving him pleasure for all eternity. Secondly, trials produce maturity, completeness. Perseverance, of course, is not an end in itself. Its purpose, verse 4, is this spiritual maturity. And that's not something that comes out of a bottle. Rather, it comes through exposure to one trial after another. We are made patient by being placed in situations or beside people who are constantly testing our patience. Do you ever pray, Lord, why do I work next to this guy? God's producing patience. Or love by by placing us next to someone who is unlovely. God produces courage in our lives by placing us in situations we naturally fear. God is using trials to perfect, to mature us. John Newton uh, records in his diary that at the beginning of a year, he fervently prayed to God that he would make him more like Jesus, transform him into a mature believer. Lord, he said, that's what I really want. That's what I desperately want. And at the end of the year, this is what he wrote. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed, intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted me and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? "'Tis in this way,' the Lord replied, "'I answer prayer for grace and faith. "'These inward trials I employ "'from pride and self to set thee free "'and break thy schemes of earthly joy "'that you may seek thy all in me. "'That you may seek thy all in me me. The third fruit of trial, wisdom. We often don't know how to deal with our trials or how to make the best use of them. And James here teaches that light and understanding comes as we ask God to make us wise, to help us to see why he allows trials to invade our lives. That's the point of uh, verse 5 following. 
When God shows us what his trials have been designed to expose and correct, it's not to rub our noses in our sin and failure, but to encourage us to benefit from our trial. And and that was Newton's experience, wasn't it? This wisdom comes in response to prayer, but note James adds, if we ask in faith. It is then that God imparts wisdom and understanding. And when James speaks of faith here, he recognizes that when we ask for wisdom and insight, our motives are often mixed. And divided motives are one of the chief hindrances to spiritual advancement. It is, you see, possible to ask God for enlightenment and understanding, to say, we really want to know, Lord, the truth about our situation. But then we qualify that under our breath, saying, we want the truth. As long as it's a truth we can be comfortable with. That's being double-minded, We want the truth, but only a truth that we can be comfortable with. Doctors, I'm told, can often tell when a patient asks, Doctor, what's wrong with me? Whether they really want to know or not. Some patients want to know and others really don't. They really, really don't. In the same way, when we come to God under trial, while we may be convinced that God uses trial for our good and for the maturing and perfecting of our character, when we ask, Lord, why is this happening to me? God knows if we really want to know the answer to that or not. And on the basis of that, he gives enlightenment or he withholds it. The criterion for receiving such wisdom is that we ask believing and not doubting. James is advocating a stable relationship, a settled loyalty. The man who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. In Scripture, the the sea illustrates instability, always in the move, flowing one way and then another, hard to pin down. Do you remember Elijah's challenge in Mount Carmel uh, to Israel? Uh, He says, don't be double-minded. If God is God, serve him. If Baal is God, serve him. Uh, I need to pin you down. We need a settled loyalty. Where does it lie? All of our trials fall within the boundary of God's control. There is no trial which touches your life which God does not intend to use for your good. You need to be convinced of that. No trial that he will not use for your good. Trials are more than tests. They are God's means of building the likeness of his son into our lives. He's determined to get our lives into showroom condition. Transformation of character is not automatic. 
It depends on our response to God's trial. How teachable are we? How willing are we to find our hearts exposed and to discover we're not the people that we thought we were? How willing are we to embrace monumental change? You see, it's only as we see the big picture, the great goal of God which trials are designed to achieve that we will be able to count our trials pure joy. And grasping what God really wants to do in our lives is truly mind-blowing. I think C.S. Lewis has captured this beautifully in his book, uh, Mere Christianity. Uh, Indulge me while I quote a, a section from it. Imagine yourself as a living house. And God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. And he intends to come and to live in it himself. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. What a prospect. What extravagant grace. Let's pray. Our gracious Father and our God, as we bow in your presence this morning, we thank you that there is no trial that can touch our lives, that you cannot and will not use for our good and for your glory. We pray that you would help us to stand back, to see the big picture, to see ourselves as those in the workshop of God who are being prepared for the showroom of glory. Enable us, Lord, to see the fruit of trial increasingly evidenced in our own life as we persevere, as we demonstrate increasingly that maturity, that Christ-likeness of character, as we 
grow in wisdom and understanding concerning your purpose for our life. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.